Hi, this is Amy Gilson from Science in the News' Sit and Listen. SITN is a graduate student organization at Harvard committed to bridging the communication gap between scientists and the general public. Not long after we released our GMO episode back in September, I sat down with two Monsanto employees. I am Larry Gilbertson and I'm a Monsanto scientist for about 20 years. I'm a molecular biologist and currently I lead the protein engineering team here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I'm Vance Crow. I am a Monsanto employee. I'm actually the director of Millennial Engagement, and um, I'm in St. Louis. During our free-ranging conversation, we talked about everything from British beer biohackers to Amish farmers, and it was incredibly interesting to get their perspectives on GMOs, Monsanto, and the goals of their own work. We talked for over an hour, but here I've edited our conversation for clarity and length to about 30 minutes. Before we get started, let me quickly introduce some of the jargony expressions you'll hear. BT is a gene that confers pest resistance to crops. So when we say BT corn, that's corn carrying the BT gene. Otherwise put, it's carrying the BT trait. Multiple traits can be stacked in the same crop. For example, corn can be engineered to carry traits for pest resistance and for herbicide resistance. When genetic engineering is used like this to address problems, you'll sometimes hear Larry call it a biotech solution. I started recording while we were discussing iGEM, a competition in which students work on teams to build genetically engineered organisms. We were outside at a cafe recording on my phone, so you'll also hear the sound of other people and some construction equipment in the background. iGEM projects are often in the area of synthetic biology, which is a form of genetic engineering. Yeah. And um, they're, they have a fairly short timeline, so they have to work on microbial projects for the mm -hmm. most part because they don't have a long time. But the types of things that they're doing are really trying to th find ways to help the world. So, for example, yeah. for me, the one that sticks out, I've seen this in the last couple of iGEM jamborees, is trying to figure out ways to make bacteria better at fixing nitrogen um, and in a way that works with plants other than legumes, other than soybean, for example. And um, there were a couple of projects this year on that. There have always been some. But, you know, this is the kind of thing that is doable and can have a huge difference on, on agriculture, for example, in reducing the need for fertilizers and so on. It's in the area of synthetic biology. And synthetic biology has a lot in common with what we do, and what we do has a lot in common with synthetic biology. And so the other interesting thing about iGEM for me was, um, not just at iGEM, but in the synthetic biology community in general, how were they starting to think about how their technologies, their products, if they become products, will be accepted, how they'll be regulated, and so on. Because, you know, for the most part, it's GMOs. Yeah. It's uh, genetically modified organisms, E. coli, bacillus, yeast, things like that. So it was really interesting to see how they're thinking about addressing this and, mm -hmm. and what they're doing. There was a group from London. They were a DIY lab. Yeah. So, like, oh, cool. just, you know, people off the street that are, you know, buying memberships to be able to uh, use lab equipment. And they were making genetically engineered beer. And oh, they cool. were talking yeah. about how they yeah. can make all this beer, but they're legally not allowed to drink it. In, in and so, England, the, yeah. and so yeah. the uh, <laughs> yeah. the judges were like, "So what will you do with this beer? Will you hold a funeral for it and just have to <laughs> dump it out? Like it was just, it or something like it that." It was yeah. interesting <laughs> to watch like them have yeah. to 
wrestle with the idea. They're like, we know this is, or we feel this is safe. We could probably test it, yeah. but we're not allowed to. We're not right. allowed to drink it right. or use it in any way. But, right. So the the British laws are. I think the laws not necessarily for selling it commercially. I'm, by the way, so I'm not an expert in this yeah. area, but it's more just approved for consumption. Period. Whether you're giving it away or selling it or not, yeah. I think approved for consumption is is probably what they're up against. Yeah. Even if you're consuming it yourself. <laughs> So anyway, that's the only. I think the reason we got started on that is that's why I'm in Boston. And so, how much of what like attracted you to your job is like, oh Monsanto? Yeah, a lot of people don't like Monsanto. Like, this is a great challenge. I've been trying to spend my whole life saying, what is the biggest problem that mm-hmm. I can go help work on? Yeah. And I think one of the things that I didn't realize before I came in for that interview I was telling you about before with Monsanto is the challenge that Monsanto has with its name is not actually Monsanto's problem alone. Because the fear that is out there that that Monsanto controls the government, or, and that that means that we can't trust regulations, yeah. and um, the fear that GMOs could get out, or you know, all of the yeah. things that are wrapped up in that fear of Monsanto, yeah. actually bleeds out into all areas of science because it makes people feel like you know scientists are in labs doing nefarious things, and yeah. so it, it was like. Um, for me, this is the place where I get the, the opportunity to work on the biggest problem in the world, which is how do you make sure that society makes decisions based on what the scientific method yeah, tells us is the way to go rather than what we're yeah. afraid of. And what I thought, you know, like with climate change and GMOs, like mm. these are things that you can't go look and touch and see if you're yeah. just a regular person. And I think we're really divorced from the concept of not having enough calories or crops mm. failing or the the problems that many of the GMOs that are currently on the market solve. So people are like, this feels like a lot of dread for not very much benefit. Are you familiar with eco-modernism? Have you heard of this? They have people like Mark Linus and Stuart Brand that came together and said, when we think about environmentalism, it's very easy to be kind of swept up in the idea that Mother Nature is this whimsical thing that we can't know what what she wants or how to preserve but actually we can know what what is better for the environment right we can determine soil quality we can figure out what are the ways to limit the amount of carbon released into the air and so they look at it and said in the developing world when you want to have bt you you need to make it so they can grow crops so those people can eat but then when you get above a certain level of poverty Eventually, people start looking around and saying, now we need to care about the environment. And the better job that we can do by maximizing the the productivity of smaller amounts of land means that you can preserve more land for the environment. So, like in the U.S., the fact that we use, can produce more on less land, then that means there's more preservation for things like hiking areas or natural preserves, things like that. I thought that was a great point. Uh, and, uh, the eco-modernist point about uh, about um, the, the more productive you can be from the land you have, actually the more diversity you preserve. Because when I go out and talk about uh, GMOs and GM crops, one of the most common questions is, don't they reduce diversity? Yeah. And I guess I would start by saying, well, agriculture reduces diversity. Intense agriculture reduces diversity, but the more productive it is, the less land you have to put into agriculture, and which preserves that diversity. So the other thing that I often talk about is some of these challenges and some of these questions are not really GMO-related. Yeah. They're just agriculture-related, yeah. like diversity. So um, 
when we make GMO corn and GMO soybean, we the diversity of germplasm genotypes that we actually uh, deploy that we sell is no no less than when it's not GMO. So what's your research about now? So uh, so yeah, I've been in Monsanto for 20 years. I'm a molecular biologist. Um, and I've worked, uh, my whole time at Monsanto, I've worked primarily on ways, better ways to make transgenic plants, better ways to express genes, better ways mm -hmm. to assemble the genes, better ways to get them into the mm -hmm. corn or cotton or soy. Uh, now I'm here in Cambridge, and I've been here for two years, and the lab that we, we have here in Cambridge is a protein engineering lab, mm -hmm. protein evolution, protein engineering lab. And um, we take proteins and just try to make them better. So. Yeah. Very few of the proteins that we mine out of nature, out of, let's say, BT strains, work perfectly the first time we try them, mm. very few. Um, only Fred Perlack can do that. He's got the magic touch. <laughs> um, but now they, uh, they, they almost always need some kind of optimization, so we'll take a, a rational approach trying to improve them, starting, in most cases, with the structure of the protein or some model of that, mm -hmm. and then make some mm -hmm. rational designs to try to improve whatever property it is that we're trying to improve, test it, learn from that, do it again, and just go through that cycle a few times until we finally get the improvement we're looking for. Monsanto doesn't do anything with animals right now. No. Do you think Monsanto ever will? I don't think so. I mean, we're a 100% ag company, yeah. and so I, I don't, we don't have any plans for anything in that area. Yeah. Um, but you know, not GMO, uh, mm -hmm. nothing like that. I mean, we don't we don't use animal genes for that matter in yeah. in plants, except for like GFP for basic research. Um, mm -hmm. And and why not actually? Why not use animals? Yeah, or no, not yeah. not. Um, why not use animal genes in, in yeah. plants? I think well, fortunately there are, there are other options mm -hmm. uh, that we can use. And, you know, frankly, it's a sensitive topic. You yeah. know, think about uh, G, it's, uh, the acceptance on genetically engineered crops is a challenge already. Yeah. Um, and animal genes would probably make that a little more challenging. Which, you know, and as I said, most of the traits that we're trying to engineer, we can do. In fact, it's mm -hmm. even better to do without any kind of animal gene. So yeah. there's not the need to. Um, but as you know, it's all A, G, C, and T, and yeah. it's all the same DNA, same genetic code. So it's, it's interesting to think of why it would make a difference, but it definitely makes a difference to some people. I guess it makes sense that it makes a difference, for example, like with BT, where uh, it targets insects, and you don't have to worry about it really targeting mammals at right. all. Right. Whereas if it were something that were maybe an animal protein you would worry right. more about interaction or right right yeah. i mean you know you can you can get into interesting conversations yeah. about okay you can't use a gene from an animal what about a piece of a gene okay mm -hmm. well how big 100 base pairs how about five base pairs <laughs> yeah. you know once you get down to sequences that small then of course they'll be identical to sequences in everything including humans but and so i think it's more like how how would uh, how would people feel about this? And when it comes to animal genes, it's um, acceptance is going to be challenging. So yeah. it's not something we need to do, and it's not something we're doing now. Yeah. We're very aware of what some of the regulatory challenges are. Um, so, for example, we don't use and we haven't used for many years antibiotic resistance mark selectable mm -hmm. marker genes. 
even though we think the safety on those is, is well established, um, we just don't use them. Um, and so there, there will be some things that would, um, the, the, the challenges are significant enough that if we don't have to do that, yeah. we just wouldn't do it. Because again, you know, it takes more than 10 years to make a product, costs over $100 million, at least half of that is just the regulatory approvals. Mm -hmm. So there's, if, if that burden becomes too high, then it just wouldn't make sense to do it. So not only when, when we start to put out a new trait, do we have to grow it up, you know, do all the lab work, prove that it works, and then start the regulatory process. But then we have to start the regulatory process in every single country that, that we will be growing those. Or in not even growing them. So in Europe, for example, there's not, um, many countries that don't cultivate GMOs, but they import them. They import them, you know, soybeans from Brazil. And so we have to get import approval. Japan and Korea, same thing. So how is getting the GM actually approved for growth different from import? Then you have to do like human health versus environmental and human health? So, something or? like that. Now, yeah. again, I'm, yeah, I, shouldn't, I'm I should be careful because, yeah. you know, we want to make sure we get it exactly right. But it's, yeah. you know, you can imagine if you're not even growing it anywhere, then the environmental impact mm -hmm. would be uh, less meaningful. Yeah. But the, like, so one of the things, people often think that the EU has banned GMOs. And really what, that's actually yeah. far more nuanced. They don't yeah. grow them there, but yeah. they import them. Yeah. And so they'll do animal feeding studies for different countries because mm -hmm. they're, many of the cheeses that they're growing yeah. are coming from cows that are eating grains. Yeah. Who, and GMOs. who's doing this, the studies? Are government-funded studies done by academic labs? or? So definitely there's a, a broad swath, right? If you are going to be, so in the, in the Monsanto's commitment to our farmers yeah. is, if we're going to put out a trait, we will get approvals to anywhere where it could potentially be exported to, because you don't want to get right. in a situation where a farmer is growing something, then it gets it gets banned in a yeah, certain country. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Right. And so, so we do those studies yeah. to make that commitment to our farmers, but then you also have government studies. Germany will do their mm -hmm. own studies on GM crops or yeah. on the safety of things like herbicide tolerance yeah. or the herbicide itself. So it, they're, they're being done by academics mm -hmm. and governments and companies. What's the coolest project that you've worked on or like the finding that is that you can talk about, that's like the yeah. coolest. Yeah, I, um, I've worked on a lot of things, although I, I tend to work on the enabling technologies, the, mm -hmm. the technologies that help then the teams make the products. Yeah. It's only since I've come to Cambridge that I'm actually working on product technologies. Mm -hmm. But I'm a, I, my, my, most of my interest are around um, precision and transformation and gene targeting and things like that. So uh, figuring out how to put genes together and... Um, making bigger and bigger stacks so uh, stacks of genes and so the one that I, I i i like the most is when we put together a big 10 gene stack and when in the early days of plant transformation the early products were all one gene or two genes um, and there were people who thought there was no way you could put in three or more genes um, agrobacterium can't do this um, just, it, the plant won't be able to handle it, and I felt like this is ridiculous. There's 40,000 genes in plants already. Agrobacterium yeah. normally transfers about 15 genes. We should be able to do this. Mm -hmm. So we, we set out just to show we put in 10 genes. Put in, 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 I don't know if you do any cloning, but uh, cloning something like that is a nightmare, but it, it got done. 
Um, so this is like a synthetic biology project. We've put in all these genes, one big fragment of DNA, transferred them into corn, showed, yes, they got it. Yes, they're all expressed. They were genes against insects, genes against herb, uh, herbicide, uh, to make them uh, tolerant of herbicides, drought genes, a whole bunch of genes, put them all in. Not only did they all get in, but they all worked and they all behaved like normal genes. And so, you know, there's at least 10's not a limit. I honestly don't know what the limit would be if there was one, but it, I, I was really happy to see that result. That was a few years ago, actually. By the way, I should mm -hmm. point out that we're talking mostly about the GMO crops. We also have vegetable right. business, and um, we uh, develop and, and sell more than 20 kinds of vegetables. Uh, those will be sold pretty much everywhere. You know, those are Africa, India, most of Europe. Uh, they're non-GMO, non um, but um, those are pretty much everywhere in South America as well. That's a, the the other side of our business, like so the vegetable business. It's you know there are a lot of things that could be done with GMOs to to make you know food waste go down because you could <laughs> you could potentially do a lot in the vegetable field. But one of the reasons that you see it in the crops that you do, yeah. row crops, is because the return on that the the yeah. um, the regulatory cost is going to be approximately the same whether you're working in broccoli or in corn, but you're not going to grow the volume of broccoli. So in order to get over that $10 million regulatory process for, you know, $100 million, yeah. like Larry was saying, yeah. so it, it's it's unlikely that some of the things that could be used, like uh, the engineered traits that you could use in things like vegetables that could lower food waste or increase the availability of vegetables probably won't happen for a while yeah. because of the, the regulatory right. barrier to get into those things. Yeah, I mean, the, um, in general, you know, the opposition, the, the challenges to GMOs are, if anything, driving up regulatory costs, and if anything, making it so that only the large acre crops and the big companies can do it, which is a shame because some of the most useful traits um, are the ones that are, just don't have the, the number of acres to to justify the over $100 million cost that it would take to develop them. Yeah. Like, how does that work for um, Hawaiian papaya? Because that one was approved, but I don't know who paid for that. I don't know exactly the consortium that developed the papaya uh, solution, but it's a, it's a biotech solution, and nine, about 90% of the papaya in Hawaii yeah. is, is engineered in this way. So those are, those are interesting cases. So you can look at the the Hawaiian papaya or like the citrus greening crisis are you familiar that with this at all yeah, that's a, that's an interesting one to look up so it's a you probably know the more specifics but when a specific crop that is really predominant in one state or one area becomes a major problem oftentimes regulators will work with people in the field the farmers hmm. to say what is it that is the actual problem how quickly can we solve it what are the challenges hmm. if we don't solve it and so the I guess the making sure that you can solve a problem that everybody can clearly see oftentimes brings people together to say what are the actual things that we need to do to make sure that they're safe more than just to reassure people i think sometimes we have some some regulatory areas that are just so everybody is very very clear that these are safe the citrus greening one is really interesting because over i mean almost all of florida citrus right now is being affected by is yep. it a, it's a virus yep Yes. You probably know more yes. about it than I do. Yeah, and it's similar to the, the papaya story. If 
if they can't find a way to control this, it's, it's really threatening the entire industry. Um, now, of course, it's a tree, and trees are more challenging, or take longer, I should say, to uh, develop biotech solutions for. But it's just because trees take longer to grow. Yeah, yeah, okay. and so right. Uh, take longer to grow, take longer to, to produce seed that then you can use for your next generation or cuttings that are, are, are big enough. There's a guy named Kevin Fulta who puts out a podcast called Talking Biotech. Yeah. And he brings on people that do like that are trying to solve citrus greening or the papaya right. stuff. It's, it's a very interesting it's a scientist talking to the to the ag industry. University of Florida professor. What's Monsanto's relationship with farmers? Like, friendly, not friendly? Oh, so that was actually, I think, probably one of the reasons that Monsanto got into the consumer challenges that they have, where yeah. people have these very strong feelings, is because it's a company made up of scientists and farmers. And so the culture is really built up around, we have farmer customers that we sell directly to. So we have right. relationships with farmers and we actually get along with them really well. It's yeah. a very different relationship with them than it is with people living in cities that aren't facing in insects or aren't facing yeah. weed problems, right? The farmers. The, and, and like the culture is such that it's it, like, it's so funny because when I came to Monsanto, I really thought it was going to be this you know, 50-story building with, like, dark, ominous clouds around it. It was a two-story building, you know, with dirty conference rooms, right? Or, like, <laughs> messy conference rooms, right? Um, and the, But the funniest part about it is it's, like, the most passive, like, polite office I've ever been in in my life, right? Because it's a bunch of people that grew up on farms that are all, like, you know, really relationship-based. Mm -hmm. And so it, the culture around Monsanto is really oriented far more towards the farmer kind of quiet mentality. I, Would you agree yeah, with that? Larry? Yeah, although I hadn't thought of it that way before, Vance. I'm a Midwesterner. I'm from Iowa, although I'm not from a farm background. Um, but it's, it's definitely a, a friendly, polite culture um, and uh, anywhere in the, that area in, in St. Louis. You know, I so I'm a scientist. I spend most of my time in the lab, working with people in the lab. Um, when I go out and talk to farmers, um, it's always, it's sort of an uplifting experience for me. I, I love to come back and tell everybody about it because they love the technology. In fact, usually when I'm out there, I'm usually out there talking about what we're working on now. And the question I usually get is, well, when can we have it? When can we have it? So they want these solutions uh, the sooner the better. So they've, they've really adopted this technology widely. So your original question is, what's a relationship like with farmers? I think it's really great. Mm -hmm. We... Um when I first started the job, I was put in a truck with a seed salesman, you know, this guy named Tom, and, and we drive around to all the different um, seed dealers to find out, like, what are the problems that the farmers are facing? And then they often, the farmers in a given area will come together at, like, a, a local church or a local community center, and they'll talk about what problems they have so that the, the, the guy Tom can take it back to our scientists to say these are the problems. And I was stunned when the like the second meeting we went to was a group of Amish farmers that were there saying, you know, when are you going to get the next layer of stacked traits? We we want you know Roundup resistance and we want BT, you know. And I just hadn't wow. it, it really surprised me. And then you have them asking questions mm -hmm. about like, you know, how are we going to determine soil quality in the next year and what are the new because they have real problems in agriculture yeah. that, and so Monsanto has relationships with farmers from everything from Iowa to 
Idaho to Amish. To, it's it's a very interesting place. I don't know much about like Amish people, but you know they're sort of. I mean, this doesn't count as electricity, right? You know, I so guess. they are yeah. technology <laughs> yeah. adopters when it comes to biotechnology. Yeah, that, that's interesting. <laughs> hmm. um, so what are what are the typical traits that are are stacked together? Is it, is it typical like BT Roundup and anything else? Yeah, or? yeah, it's uh, yeah. insects and weeds, okay. uh, and yeah. then yield traits or. Mm -hmm. uh, drought traits as they come along. Um, so so dr drought is sort of what's in the pipeline right now? Well, we or? just launched a product called Drought Guard that mm -hmm. helps the plants use water more efficiently. Mm. Um, but, so it's, it's not only is it stacks of, say, herbicide tolerance and insect resistance in general, uh, but you can divide those up. Which yeah. herbicide are you talking about? For insects, which insect are you talking about? Um, mm. Above ground or below ground insects, for example. Mm. And then... Now they're becoming stacks of multiple modes of action or multiple mechanisms of action. Because these, these products, just like any product that's successful, eventually resistance will arise. It's just you know, evolution. And in fact, the more successful they are, the more likely it is something like that's going to pop up. So it's not a matter of uh, if, it's a matter of when. Any technology used to control insects or weeds they will eventually become resistant. Even if your technology is to go out there and pluck the insects off the plant by hand, mm. eventually they'll get better at seeing you coming or something like that. They'll get camouflaged. Eventually they will. Anyway, so resistance does occur. Or they'll occur. bite you. <laughs> they'll bite you and then you won't, yeah. <laughs> uh, resistance will arise eventually. And so how that gets addressed is by bringing in new genes that uh, overcome that resistance because they work through a different mode mm -hmm. of action. And then you start to stack those because, as you, I'm sure you know, the more of those that you combine, the longer you're going to put off the, the evolution of resistance. Well, one thing that I would say, and it was also surprising to me, my, my conception of Monsanto was that it is only a biotech company, but it's actually like a, less than half of our budget goes to biotech. Less, the rest yeah. is you know, regular breeding. And so the, the first way that you can do resistance is actually just breeding out plants, you know, combining two parents that have better resistance to those traits, Wait, to those so do, insects. Do traits and like stack traits, I, I thought that traits always refer to some, to genetic engineering. Sometimes. So this is kind of jargon, right? So sometimes when we talk about traits, we actually mean biotech traits, transgenes. And that's what I've been talking about yeah. so far. But but you're absolutely true. Obviously, plants have thousands of traits yeah. already. Uh, and so sometimes we call them biotech traits and native traits. Mm -hmm. And so you may have a native trait that makes the plant resistant to a fungal infection. And then you're going to stack that with a transgenic trait that makes it resistant to a uh, fall armyworm or something like that. So, so you could... So you could potentially have uh, um, a seed with stacked traits that are all native traits, and it would still yeah, be referred to absolutely. as stacked crop. Or absolutely, stacked. yes. Uh, uh, I didn't realize. So these breeding traits, as Van said, uh, meanwhile, and I think this is a good point, that our breeding organization in terms of size and resources and investment is actually double our biotech organization. So when people say, why don't you just breed? Well, we do. <laughs> and in fact, we do a lot of it. And we're looking, we're breeding for traits, including resistant to, to diseases, for example. And those will sometimes be basically a gene, uh, a locus. So now you can stack that just like you would stack any gene. And you can stack native traits with native traits, biotech traits with biotech traits, or biotech traits with native traits. 
a big part of the breeding, like the getting away from the biotech part of it, but like that surprised me is over 90% of our seeds that we sell, they all have to be grown in the conditions that they're going to be grown in the next year. So, you know, it's really easy to imagine that the dark clouded Monsanto is growing seeds in factories when actually all of our seeds are grown within 200, 90% of them are grown within 200 miles of where they're sold. So we have to have all of these different lines to be able to deal with Iowa soil conditions versus northern Missouri versus Nebraska. And it adds in this whole layer of complexity where it's not just we have corn that we then add a few traits into and go out and sell. And so we started out in the early stages of our pipeline testing in a few locations just to see is there anything happening. But then as we move farther and farther down the pipeline, we're testing under more and more locations. And... um, We'll get up to 30 locations, 50 locations. And then, even as we get to the point where we're getting ready to launch our product, we'll go out and start doing demos for farmers in you know, locations all over, the, all over the world, all over wherever we have customers. Our organization called Technology Development, what they're doing is that, that last line right before and as we're commercializing and handing off the farmers. So they'll be testing that you know, you need more water to get the yield, this would come out somewhere along the lines. One of the things that I read about a lot when I, when I read about GM crops being adopted in developing countries is um, sort of farmers adopting these things and then being very disappointed and not having their yields and then being in, in grave trouble. So Fred Perlack is one of the people that was helping with the BT in uh, um, cotton in India mm-hmm. and he told me an interesting story so it's this is you know anecdotal from yeah. from Fred Perlack but he was saying when we first launched BT cotton in India they came in at a price point that was going to mean that you know only a few farmers could afford it but it actually created a really kind of dangerous problem in that suddenly people knew that there was this new transgenic <laughs> thing but they, there weren't reputable sales dealers. They didn't have the system. I heard that it system. came through the black market. Initially. And so there were people yeah. actually stealing seed bags or faking seed bags and saying, there's BT in these, these seeds and you can't look at a seed and yeah. know. So they were paying inflated prices to people that were giving them you know, generic seeds that didn't have traits, planted them, and did get into trouble. And yeah. so what ended up happening was the government intervened and said, okay, we're now going to set the price. So in India, the price of of cotton seed is set by the government. But what that also enabled Monsanto to do is to come in and say, okay, we're going to set up established seed dealers where you know who they are. Because like our seed system, the way that we sell now with reputable dealers is really sophisticated now. But if you're in the developing world, it it wasn't that way. So he was even telling me to the degree that we hang up seed bags on the walls in in some of our hallways, and all of those came down because they were so afraid that somebody would would steal a bag or copy a bag and start filling it with generic seeds, and then that's a farmer that's in grave danger. And so that perpetuated Mm. this myth that these farmers were getting seeds that were underperforming and that if you actually were going out and testing those fields that were underperforming, they weren't with transgenics. So they, they weren't Monsanto seeds. Is most of the BT cotton grown in India Monsanto cotton? Or is it I don't know. Well, it's, it's our genes. Uh, we okay, have a, a collaboration with a company there that does the seed, uh, the commercial production of seed, um, mm. but 
So I like to think of it more as, is it our, our gene, our BT gene in this yeah. case? And I, I believe so. Was that also the case with the eggplant that ended up not growing there? Yeah, no, I don't right. think, whether or not that's our gene or not, I don't know, but it's, um, so it's not our commercial product. We didn't right. transform into the eggplant. Uh, brinjal is what they call it there. Yeah. Okay. Um, and that, that's been, that's been uh, a really hot topic over there in, in India and in, in Bangladesh. And it's, it's one of those ones that I, when I hear about it, I think, you know, this is, I don't know if crime is too much of a word, but it's really, really sad that this, this technology is, especially that one, it can have so much impact. And, you know, this, so I work on BT genes now. And hmm. it's amazing what the difference of one gene can do in terms of insect damage and therefore in the case of farmers and places like that, how much you have to spray and when you have to spray and so on. Hmm. Just one gene. It's, it's amazing. Fred Perlack, who we've mentioned a couple times, yeah. he, he always talks about when they were first coming out with this technology, they would hold meetings and people didn't show up. It wasn't yeah. something that was on people's radars. But now, because of the proliferation of the internet and the proliferation of fear, people are paying attention. It felt weird when we were reaching out to you guys. You know, it's your mm -hmm. first podcast, and we were like, yeah. hey, we want to sit down and talk. But um, we actually really, we are taking science communicators seriously. There's yeah. definitely a big movement going on for scientists to get out there and talk. Our thing is we're as open as we as we can be and if there's people that are interested in going and communicating with the public and they have questions for us we're very open to it and i'm willing to talk to anybody anytime about almost anything and i always invite people to come visit great right, thank you so much right, thank you really great. enjoyed this yep. all right everyone thanks for sitting and listening sitn is committed as always to bridging the communication gap between scientists and the general public while doing research for this episode, I found a page where Vance describes his job like this, to help bridge the cultural divide between Monsanto and the broader public. That's just so similar to how we describe our mission that it blew my mind, and I swear it's total chance. But you know, underneath chance, maybe there is a reason we converged. As different as a company like Monsanto and a student organization like ours may be, this discovery makes me think that there's something uncannily similar in how each of us views our relationship with society. So if I try to sketch it out, it goes something like this. Lots of people see our work and perhaps even science itself really differently from how we do. And maybe that's bad for business, but it's also bad for all of us if we as a society can't settle on methods to ensure food security or stop climate change and so on. So we've got to bridge this divide. We've got to talk to one another. Because once we know each other and we're working with the same scientific information, we'll be on the same page, finally. Won't we? If this sounds like it could be the subject of a whole episode, it will be. We're launching a new podcast series with historians, philosophers of science, and others. One that will focus on science and its complex relation with society. In our first episode, we'll take a closer look at this very issue, the issue of science communication. We'll trace its history back to 1800s and analyze its purpose during controversies like those over GMOs or climate change or vaccines. In the meanwhile, we want to hear your thoughts on science, science communication, and your suggestions for the podcast. Email us at sitnpodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like to hear more from Larry and Vance, here are a couple places where you can find them. 
Larry participated in Boston Skeptics at the pub, and there's footage of that on Vimeo. And Vance has been interviewed by NPR in an article called Monsanto Hired This Guy to Help Win Over Millennials. And if all of this talk of science communication has got you hungry, check out the podcast Vance mentioned, Talking Biotech, hosted by Kevin Fulta. Or check out some articles on the SITN blog. We've just released a special edition on neurotechnology, and there you'll find tons of information from the genetics of schizophrenia to the article CRISPR in Neurotechnology, which is by Sit and Listen's very own Angela Shee. The SITN blog and this episode's show notes with links to everything I just mentioned can be found at our shiny new website, sitn.hms.harvard.edu. Until next time! Mm -hmm. No, this was really thorough. Yeah, Yeah. this is great.